Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so I'm not going to mess around. Let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet John Irving. He's the Academy Award-winning author of a book that you for sure read. Because, well, I think everyone's read it. It's called The World According to Garp. His other works include very popular books like The Slaughterhouse Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and Avenue of Mysteries, among many others. Today, we talk about his latest novel, The Last Chairlift. It's an epic story of a slalom skier with a very eventful past, and it displays John Irving's trademarked imagination, storytelling gifts, and intelligence. Intelligence. You don't want to miss this interview. I'm really happy with it, but that's a little bit later on. We'll also meet Mark Critch, star of the hit CBC sitcom Son of a Critch, and this hour has 22 minutes, which celebrates its 30th season this year. We talk about his time spent on the political satire and some of his antics, like the time he fooled Justin Trudeau into believing he was going to smoke a joint in the House of Parliament. In the summer, a lot of people were talking about you. You came out famously and you admitted that while you were an MP, you had, you know, uh, smoked pot. I'd never really been to a throne speech before. You've been to a lot of them. Jesus, Justin, it's pretty, it's boring stuff. And uh, I'm just wondering, the question I wanted to ask you is, where around here can I tell You're that? kidding. Like that. You couldn't bring that into Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> Why, is it, it's not good? It's not a good idea. Well, is there not a good idea? You're, you're not going to hotbox my office, no way. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought you were the coolest. That's a little bit later on. First, though, let's meet actor and Juno-nominated jazz singer and songwriter Alex Bird. The subject line of an email from his publicist really caught my eye. Move over, Buble, it read. Juno-nominated artist Alex Bird has released Canada's first Thanksgiving song. That's right, Thanksgiving finally has its own anthem courtesy of Alex Bird. In this interview, we talk about the inspiration behind The Sweetest Moments and why Canada deserved a Thanksgiving song of its very own. Alex Bird joined me via Zoom. The days go passing by and turn to years, but with some pumpkin pie, fall appears. It's been a long time coming. We've all been missing something. It happens every fall. The sweetest moments of them all. Why Thanksgiving? Well, I mean, it's one of the sweetest holidays, and it and it doesn't have a, a holiday tune. It, you know, especially here in Canada, uh, it's a little bit different than American Thanksgiving. You know, we're not so close to Christmas. There's not the added pressure of going over to your 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 folks' house and having to bring gifts. You just kind of have to bring yourself, maybe some food, and kind of share stories and 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 bring in the holiday together. So that's why we chose Thanksgiving because it's one of the sweetest times, and that's why we named it the sweetest moments. We think it really tries to encapsulate everything that you feel and think, the faces, the smells, the laughter, the turkey. And to be quite frank with you, we haven't really had that in the past few years. This year coming might be the the, the closest we have to that. And where did the idea come from? 
Uh, were you thinking, hey, maybe I'll make a, a, a Christmas CD? And then you thought, ah, there's too many of those out there already. And then you switched over. I must say, Michael Bublé has Christmas locked down. So please give <laughs> this new crooner Thanksgiving at least. I'll take it, you know, whatever <laughs> holiday I can get. But um, we, we kind of had some ideas floating around. And then uh, Think Turkey, who produced the song, got behind us and, and gave us full creative control of the song. And they wanted essentially us to write a Thanksgiving anthem for Canada. So that got things kicking in my head. And I got together with my songwriting partner, Mr. Ewan Farncombe. Uh, we were nominated this year for Best Vocal Jazz Album at the Year of the Junos, which we're very excited about. Mm -hmm. And we thought, if we're going to do this, if we're honestly going to do this, it has to be a very genuine, legit song that speaks to everybody. Because Canadians all across the country celebrate Thanksgiving in, in many different forms. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be the same across the country. It can be whatever your special little thing is. So we wanted to try to encapsulate that and, and, and make it something special for everybody. I think we did it. I hope we did it. I, I think you have. Uh, the song is great. People gather round. It's been a while. What's lost can now be found. Within a smile. It's been a long time coming. Homeward bound I'm running. It happens every the sweetest moments of them all. When you listen to it, it, it feels like it's been around for a long time. Tell me about some of your inspirations. Yeah, well, I mean, to make a very, very long story short for you, I got very lucky when I was a kid. I was adopted from Romania, and I came to Canada at six weeks old. Mm. And I started being taken to jazz clubs in downtown Toronto at the age of two. And I got to grow up seeing Oscar Peterson and Diana Krall. They used to smoke back in the club, you know, thanks <laughs> yeah, to yeah. second hand smoking for my voice, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Were your parents jazz players? Or I guess just big jazz no, fans? No, just, just fans. And, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I was taken to these smoky jazz bars, got to see all sorts of people. You're listening to jazz singer Alex Bird on The Richard Krause Show. His Thanksgiving tune, The Sweetest Moments, can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Music, and Bandcamp. And I guess through a process of jazz osmosis, I kind of learned how to do this. And uh, when I started singing in high school, it picked up more and more and more. And it's only been the past three or four years that I've really been trying to make a go of this. I met my songwriting partner, Mr. Ewan Farncombe, who's one of the best jazz pianists in our country, and some of my other band members. And we started writing music, and I found out that there was a songwriter inside of me. Hmm. So everything I do is a thank you to the past, but I also want to make sure that this music lives today and and speaks to people today not just a so there is that timeless throwback classic i think the sweetest moments in particular i like to say it's a, a cross between the christmas song and uh, i'll be home for christmas and kind of yeah. meet those two places but uh, i'm really happy that it's resonating with people well it's a great song and i think one of the things that makes for instance christmas music so resonant with people is that it touches you in an emotional way uh, that is is different. So uh, a lot of Christmas songs are about longing and they're about I'll be home for Christmas, only my dreams, that kind of thing. Uh, they're not just the straight up Christmas song. And I kind of yeah. got that vibe from this. The sweetest uh, thing just kind of to me feels like um, we're celebrating, but there's a there's a bit of that kind of that that feeling of bringing everyone together, it maybe if only in our dreams yeah. kind of thing. And I yeah, just have to work so well. Thank you so much. Well, I also wanted to not overtly nod to what we've all been through together yeah. over the pandemic, but also write something that could be used anytime. So for instance, there's a line I really like in the song, um, uh, what's lost can now be found within a smile. You know, 
people are taking masks off again. You can see people's faces and it's something that we've missed so much, especially from the people that we really care about. So all tied it in, I hope. Interesting that in this climate, uh, you know, you have a sponsor to get the song uh, made and, and, and out there. And it's such a cool way of getting your art in front of people. Um, I admire it. I like the, the idea of taking uh, your work with Think Turkey and then handing in a completely credible and great song. For sure. I mean, I didn't expect to follow up the Juno nomination this year with writing a Thanksgiving song produced by Think Turkey, but hey, man, that sounds about right to me. That's the way life goes, and I'll take it. What's next for you? Well, as I mentioned, we've been writing a lot of music, so there may or may not be some stuff coming out soon. Uh, we got a couple collaborations with different uh, musicians coming up, but essentially it's just kind of getting out there. I mean, yeah. we, we are just kind of taking off in the sense that more and more people are learning about us and the work that we're doing. Um, if you go check out our music, it's only two original albums you're going to find. You know, we do old classics at the gigs, but I feel like the thing I love about all those old, old, old names like Frank Sinatra and Chet Baker and Peggy Lee and Ella Fitzgerald, at the time it was the popular music, so it's really tough to translate today. But they were still doing their own thing, and they were searching out new songwriters and new voices throughout the ages because they always wanted to stay current. Mm-hmm. So that's my mission: is you know I'm going to take the past and hopefully bring it forward and uh, to new ears and new people and and try to get people excited. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about is that all our gigs. It's not just the older folks. We have a lot of young people coming to our shows and a lot of young people sharing our music. And that's really hip to me. I think that's a really good sign for the future. I think good music is good music and people will find it. Exactly. If exactly. no matter what style or what genre it is. Um, you've been going to clubs and seeing uh, people since you were so young. Uh, are there moments that you have that that stand out, those magic moments where you saw someone on stage do something that really influenced you? Oh my gosh, there's so many. I think one of the the coolest things is there was an old jazz club called the Montreal Bistro Mm. in downtown Toronto. Mm. And uh, one night there was a very last minute unannounced Oscar Peterson show, two sets, something like $200 per set. And uh, we used to go all the time and the owner Lothar used to say, you know, he's he's under the cover, he's short enough, we don't charge him tonight. And he let us come for one set of music and I sat there a few feet away from Oscar and just watched like the most magical experience of my life. I can still picture it clearly. It was one of those moments where I thought, I, d- I don't know what I'm going to do in music, but I know I have to do something in music. Yeah. It's little things like that. I've seen Oscar Peterson play. I met Oscar Peterson and I was surprised when I shook his hand, how big his fingers yes. were because yeah. he played so quickly. It sounded yeah. sometimes like yeah. there were yeah. four sets of hands. Oh, on- yeah on the uh, keyboard but those hands you would not have imagined that that dexterity would come out of those hands i had the same response i got to know ray brown a little bit as a kid going up growing to the jazz clubs and his hands were massive yeah. just like incredible to be able to play those instruments with such precision and just have that 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 reach on the, the bass or the piano i mean they're they're legends and masters and they always will be and especially oscar being a canadian talent is really yeah. important and something to look up to for me and other people yeah, for sure. That was jazz singer Alex Bird on the Richard Krause Show. His Thanksgiving tune, The Sweetest Moments, can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Music, and Bandcamp. Say hi to Mark Critch. He is an actor, comedian, and author whose autobiographical sitcom, Son of a Critch, is a big hit on CBC. 
Also, since 2003, he's starred on the political parody show This Hour Has 22 Minutes. He's photobombed Justin Trudeau, offered Pamela Anderson a million dollars to stop acting, and poked fun at characters like Rex Murphy, Don Cherry, and Donald Trump. The show turns 30 years old this season, making it the longest-running comedy show on Canadian television. So Mark stopped by to talk about some of his favorite moments, how the show has changed over the years, and why he still feels like the new guy in the office. Here's Mark Critch. Well, I've been there 20 years, and in my mind, though, I remember when it started. I remember um, walking in Halifax my first time out of Newfoundland and Labrador, and I was doing a Fringe Festival sketch comedy show. I ran into Rick Mercer. I'm like, Rick, what are you doing here? And he said, uh, he said, well, you know, we're doing this new show. It's only six episodes. It's going to be on a summer replacement series after the National called This Hour Has 22 Minutes. And I immediately thought two things. Horrible title. And <laughs> six episodes. That's going to be, that's fantastic. That's huge. Yeah. And then I said, I, I, I'm up here. I don't have a place to crash. Can I stay on the floor of your apartment? And he let me. And there's like no furniture. I stay on the floor. And I just realized today I moved into a new apartment. And it's that same apartment in Halifax. No. Same condo. Yeah, that I slept on the floor of uh, when I first went up. So I haven't gone that far. I'm on a bed now. But I'm still like people always say like, oh, yeah, where's Rick Mercer? I miss him. And I'm still now I'm still sleeping in Rick's old apartment. I'll never catch up. But, yeah, no, it's it's always I it, it's, the show had so much history when I joined. It had 10 years, which was like almost unprecedented. Right. Yeah. And uh, and now we've been there for a while. But, yeah, I, I still kind of feel. Like, you know, like somebody's going to come in and say, hey, you, you're not supposed to be in here. Get out. <laughs> well, the show has made uh, uh, a mockery of authority it, its main staple. That's what it does. Um, but it, it must have changed and evolved over the 20 years that you've been there. How do you think it has changed? Well, I think like we do. After a while, when I started, you chase a politician down and ambush them and get a couple of lines in before security haul you away. <laughs> and now you've been there for, everybody knows you, you know, they see it, it's sneaking around corners. is not really as possible in Canada anymore because they know it. So now they'll actually sit down and talk to you or they won't, you know, so right. sometimes you tell them to pop up and last ambush I did was Andrew Shear. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do an interview kind of. So I, I showed up at one of his rallies, but uh, he, if that element has changed a bit. It's become more and more of a conversation when, when mm. you interview someone. And um, I think the big way it's evolved, I think, in the way people digest it and, and take it in, in that we have a big audience on TikTok and we have like millions of likes on there. And then we have a big audience on Facebook. And I was at a bank. I went to the bank because I'm an old man and at heart, you know, I still bank, you know, yep, yep. shuffling in me. You want to talk to a teller. Yeah. You want to see yeah, that money. Right? Yeah. I'm like, I want to make sure this check is stamped and let me see the phone bill. Is there a stamp on it? And, you know, I'm just paranoid. And anyway, the, the teller is a young guy. He looked at me. He's like, hey, you're the guy for the TikTok videos. And I said, no, sir, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. And he said, yes, you were. And I said, but he got me confused, man. I'm so far. He goes, look. And he showed me. It was a 22 Minutes account. And he said, you make these videos on TikTok and Facebook. And I said, wait a minute. You know there's a TV show, right? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't just make Facebook videos. I, I actually have a TV show. And he's like, oh, I don't know, TV. So I went from being cool to being this sad old man within seconds uh, once I brought up television. It was great. Well, it, it doesn't matter how they find you as long as they find you. Right? And right. our show is lucky that way in that it's made to have little two-minute snippets taken out of it, and they can live on their own. 
Yeah. And that's been a, a great strength for us in, in finding new audience. Do you miss the kind of, I don't know, older, scrappier days when you would ambush somebody? Did, was that, did that get your blood pumping in a way that feels different than it does today? It still does. Like, you know, when you go into interview a party leader or the prime minister or someone, you're still like, ah, can I get jacked up a bit? But you get to know these people, right? right. Back then, when I would like try and get to Jean Chrétien, he kind of knew me as that new guy on that show. Right. Who are you kind of thing. And you had to push through and do your thing. You're listening to Mark Critch on The Richard Krause Show. See him on This Hour has 22 minutes, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. on CBC and CBC Gem. But now, I mean... I've known the prime minister since before he was in politics from interviewing him and stuff. Right. So it's, it's, it's less of, of a, uh, Oh my God, what's, what's going to happen? I suppose, Hello. I'm going to make fun of you now. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? And, and, and so it's, it's a weird thing like that where it's expected, but you know, the, the, the older days when we used to just four of us in the writer's room going through newspapers with scissors and getting VHS tapes out and recording the national and then finding the time code and editing it. Again. Like that was so different, but it was a great way to learn because you, you had to know and formulate opinions and be following everything to comment on it. Yeah. Whereas now you can look something up, find out everything about it online and go. So I think you get a long, the old way you get a, a longer, uh, uh, and deeper maybe base of knowledge uh, to work from, which really helps you on the, when you're on the fly. You know, mm -hmm. if we go up there and interview people, I might not get Stephen Harper, but oh, look, uh, this other MP has come. Oh, I know what I can say to him. So you're, it keeps you sharp. Was there any sense of nerves uh, or was it just instinct when you uh, asked Justin Trudeau, who you say you know, but this was a while ago about lighting up. Where where can a fellow light up around here? Over the summer, a lot of people were talking about you. You came out famously and you admitted that while you were an MP, you had, you know, uh, smoked pot. I'd never really been to a throne speech before. You've been to a lot of them. Jesus, Justin, it's pretty, it's boring stuff. And uh, I'm just wondering, the question I wanted to ask you is... Where around here can I You're that? kidding. Like you didn't bring that to the parliament. Oh, the <laughs> Why? Is it, it's not good? It's not a good idea. Well, is there a like, You're, you're not going to hotbox my office. No <laughs> way. Oh, oh, I thought you were the cool what was What was going through your head in that moment? Well, that was like a, one of these fishing expeditions we used to take where I'd fly up and go into scrum area of Parliament Hill and just kind of look and see who was around. And we are right. taping some other pieces. And we asked if we could see him. And he said, well, I, I can't come down. Come up to my office. So we go up to his office. And on the way up, I'm like, okay, what am I going to talk to him about now? <laughs> and I just, it's just like a piece of paper or maybe somebody had a paper or whatever. But it wasn't really planned. I just rolled it up and hauled it out. We got a lighter off our camera guy and said, hey, where do I spark? Because he was all about him legalizing marijuana at the time. Yeah. And he was just, don't hotbox my office. He thought it was real. Everything got really weird afterwards. <laughs> you know, you don't think things through. They're all upset, you know. And it's like, yeah, come on, guys. But you're trying to legalize it, you know, just have it, enjoy it at least. <laughs> but uh, it was, that was kind of fun. But that was one of those things of like, you'd go, you, you're, you had to come back with something, right? So right. sometimes you'd go on the road and they'd fly you up and your piece didn't work out. But then you'd be like, well, geez, we can't go back with nothing. You might make us pay for the flight, you know? So you're desperately trying to come up with anything. And then you get back. And then, then you get back and there's all these phone calls from the liberal leader's office asking, well, how dare the guy from your show bring in a joint, you know? And then you're in trouble, so. That's better for the show, though. 
Oh yeah. You All know, like it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be whatever works best for the show because you know, the, the bottom line I think is that probably most of these politicians would rather be mentioned on 22 minutes than not mentioned on 22 minutes. Even like when you play a clip of somebody, you're making fun of them. Like I did last night at the taping a couple of times, you, I think they're, uh, they do like retweet it and stuff or they'll mention it like i can't believe these people did this to me here's the clip you know and i think it gets it's a bit of a badge of honor and that's a great thing though too is like there's always something like yesterday we're doing the taping and we had it all prepared because we're you know it's on the road so we do mm -hmm. make as many changes and then i see this video of justin trudeau bungee jumping and i'm like hey can we ingest this can i can i get a graphic i know i said i wouldn't ask this but i had to get this in there and so we use that. And, uh, and so it's there's uh, they're always giving. And then they get something out of it, too. But they're yep. always giving. That was Mark Critch on the Richard Krause Show. See him on This Hour has 22 minutes every Tuesday at 8 p.m. on CBC and CBC Gem as they celebrate 30 years on television. Since publishing his first novel in 1968, my guest, John Irving, has been a literary force. He's the Academy Award-winning author of The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and many others, books that have been translated into more than 35 languages. Today, we talk about his latest novel, The Last Chairlift. It's an epic story of a slalom skier with an eventful past that displays John Irving's trademarked imagination, storytelling gifts, and intelligence. I very much enjoyed speaking with Mr. Irving. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here's John Irving. This is a weighty novel, but to me, it felt really cinematic. And what I mean by that, not just because part of it is written uh, in the form of screenplay, right. but I mean cinematic in the sense that uh, movies take their time. Movies don't have that hour-long construction of a television show where that has to move so quickly. Movies can take their time. They can tell you more information. They can immerse you in the story a little bit more. And that's what I felt when I was reading The Last Chairlift, that I was being brought into this story in a way that was meant to be immersive and that those little details just all added up like bricks that eventually built the house that is the novel. Well, you're a good reader because that 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 is intentional, and um, I also feel that again, learning from Moby Dick, you can compel a reader into the story more quickly if you keep those opening chapters short mm -hmm. and, and you uh, make the action move, move, move. Once you feel that the reader has, or you hope has. Uh, uh, an invested interest emotionally in the characters, you can let those chapters get a little longer. You can, you can, as you say, take more time. You talk about being emotionally invested in the characters as a as a reader, uh, and I I understand what that means. But as an author, when you're creating them. How emotionally involved do you get with them? And is there a point, and maybe this is a completely silly question, but is there a point at which you become so emotionally involved with them that you don't want bad things to happen to them or you they, they, they take on a life that is something a little different than maybe you had planned on ink and paper? No, it sounds ghoulish to say, <laughs> but, but uh, it's my job as a, uh, a worst-case scenario writer uh, 
to think of bad things happening to the people you love. Right. Yeah. This is the opposite of my life as a father and a husband, where <laughs> I live in dread of anything bad happening to someone mm -hmm. I love. But uh, storytelling to me begins with that premise. Um, a reader's not going to care what happens to a character if if they don't have an emotional attachment mm -hmm. to that character. Uh, you, you've got to create that attachment and make it hurt more, I guess. One of my children said this very insightfully, um, my oldest uh, child, who was 13 and 14 when he read The World According to Garp, and the, the poor kid was sort of caught off guard at a, um, at a public event where people were asking me questions. And someone in the audience knew he was there and asked him, is is this character your father is 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 this what's what he's like or what happens to him and i thought oh poor colin he's been put on the spot um and colin very calmly said no that's not my father he doesn't write about what has happened to him or to us he writes about what he's afraid of okay I was going to ask you about this because uh, you say you don't get to choose your demons. They choose you. True. And, and those are the things that you're right. When you mentioned the word dread, that's what popped into my head. You have this dread of something happening to your family. And so much of your writing has had to do with families and interpersonal relationships where not always great things happen to the people. True. And that's, that's what it is. That's, that's where it comes from a fear of, of that happening in real life, but not autobiographically. Yes. The autobiography becomes more playful, I think, as I get older. Right. I I like to revisit, uh, especially in the family novels, in the so-called family saga novels. You're listening to author John Irving on The Richard Krauss Show. His latest novel, The Last Chairlift, is available now wherever fine books are sold. I like to revisit a a set of circumstances that I hope are autobiographically familiar to many of my readers, right. a familiar premise, an elusive, evasive mother, a missing biological father. But from that premise, I then try to tell each time a completely different story mm -hmm. that uh, goes as far from my autobiography as I could imagine. Um, uh, that's the dread part, I suppose. And in this case, um, because in ad addition to it being a, an ending-driven uh, novel, I, I, I think the LGBTQ subject is as central to this novel as the abortion subject was to the Cider House Rules. Right. Namely, um, Everything in this story happens because Adam's the only uh, straight guy in his family. In Adam's family, he's the odd duck. Right, right. Uh, right. Yeah. His extended family is all queer except him. Uh, they're the normal ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is the one who is always the last to know, who is the uh, slowest to catch on politically. He is learning from them. Um, 
And they're a very loving family. Um, uh, but they're as queer as they can be. Well, your books have always been about uh, tolerance and understanding and, and real affection for people who um, are, quote, unquote, different. And the, the last chairlift is no different. Do you think it's those qualities that define your work, or is it just who you are and it bleeds through no matter what? I think it's more the latter case. It's who I am and it bleeds yeah. through. Because, uh, truth be told, I don't think it bleeds through all the time. Mm. Looking at the 15 novels, I would say that, in my estimation, only seven or eight of those 15 novels are what I would call political, right. what I would call novels that are driven by a social conscience. Uh, not all of my novels are a political story. Right. Um, this one certainly is. And uh, the, uh, I, it's, not the it's, it's not the only time I've had a mother in one of my novels say uh, something that is an echo of something I remember my mother saying. Mm -hmm. When I was, at the time, a young, unknown writer, with two small children. I was writing my fourth novel, um, still working full-time as a teacher and a wrestling coach, which I thought I always would be. Right. Um, uh, my fourth novel, The World According to Garp, was my first bestseller. So it was at that moment in my life, um, I had a younger, um, uh, boy girl uh i had younger boy girl twins in my family um uh, both of whom were gay and i remember my mother saying and and this was prior before roe versus wade and 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 she said if they meaning the men in power if they can treat women as if were sexual minorities, how much worse are they going to treat real sexual minorities, meaning my brother and sister? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I've quoted her before. I wouldn't be surprised if I did it again. <laughs> because it was an eye-opening moment for me. And uh, my mother said it first. You write often, and as you talk about gender and and sexuality, you examine them. Certainly, in the last chairlift, you do as well. But these are topics that are often so fraught in our culture. And uh, frankly, I don't really understand why. I don't understand why we can't have frank discussions about sexuality. Uh, your mother was doing it in the early 1970s and seemed to have a a, a, a grip on things. I don't understand why. 45, whatever it is, you know, 50 years later, why we cannot understand that that's the norm. Yeah, boy, am I with you there. I uh, I feel I'm so uh, generally bad at um, so-called political uh, pressions. It seems to me I'm mostly wrong. I think I write about the past as much as I do because I don't trust myself to speculate on the future. I remember thinking uh, when I finished The World According to Garb, which was intentionally, I thought, I hoped, an, a feminist novel, 
I remember thinking, oh God, by the time this novel is published, all those stupid right. uh, sexual intolerances will have vanished. Yeah, the prejudices will be gone. Gone, right? They haven't gone away. And well, I think in the last chairlift, one thing I, and I don't take credit for this. I, I, I think the reason this is true speaks miles about the political backwardness of my birth country, the, the United States, not about my being prescient, but the principal political targets in the last chairlift are the Republicans and the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. What those Republican Supreme Court justices did was much more in step with the Vatican than it was with the First Amendment of the US Constitution, that part that is quoted ad nauseum in mm. the last chairlift, make no laws respecting an establishment of religion. Well, that's what those justices did. They did that. As much as I've been exposed to the backlash of hatred that so often in the United States follows anything progressive. Mm -hmm. I, I can't claim I saw th this coming. I began the last chairlift in December of 2016. Right. I knew what was going to happen. Before I let you go, I just I, I cannot go without mentioning the Academy Award that is sitting behind you. Is that it's just it's on your mantelpiece for people at home that can't say obviously not seeing the picture. It's on your mantelpiece. Uh, do you even notice it anymore? Or is it just part of the furniture for you now? Of course, I notice it. Yeah. It was a special uh, moment for me, um, yeah. especially since writing screenplays isn't my my day job. Mm. Uh, it, it it meant a lot to me. Uh, that film meant a lot to me. It was a, a long time in the making. Uh, the Canadian director uh, who was going to make it first, Philip Borsos, mm. uh, got sick and died. Yeah. Um, two other directors were uh, um, uh, fell by the way uh, and, and, and did not turn out to be uh, suitable. But uh, the collaboration I had with Lasse Hallstrom um, was a really good one. And uh, uh, the, the film meant... Um, uh, a great deal uh, to me. You're listening to author John Irving on The Richard Krause Show. His latest novel, The Last Chairlift, is available wherever fine books are sold. It was made as I'd written it. It was directed as as I'd uh, hoped. And and we know how uh, unusual an experience mm. that is. So what, that it took four directors and 14 years. Um, it, it was worth it. And... I, I thought back, my first film was, was, my first novel was optioned as a film, Setting Free the Bears, mm. uh, by Columbia Pictures in the UK, not in uh, Los Angeles, but in London. Um, and the wonderful director, Irvin Kirshner, was attached to that. Irvin Kirshner taught me how to write a screenplay. I love that man. Um, it, it would probably kill him again to know that He's best known now for um, The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Um, in my view, my favorite of the Star Wars films. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, no, that gets a big thumbs up from me. Yeah. Really? yeah. Um, 
Well, Kirshner was a very kind and patient teacher to me. I knew nothing about writing a screenplay. We spent two years doing it in Columbia, pulled the plug. They owned the rights forever. I could never get them back. Um, uh, I was bitterly disappointed. I said to Kirshner, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> um, and uh, Kirshner said, um, don't worry, kid. You learn something you can use. It'll be okay. Well, you can, you can appreciate this, uh, knowing how frequently screenplays are never made, yeah. uh, knowing how important a part of um, this novel, The Last Chairlift, that very point is. Um, uh, screenwriters, all screenwriters, Oscar-winning screenwriters and all the rest of them uh, live with the fact that many of the screenplays they write will never be made. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can't get around it. And the things that don't get made um, live in you. You you can't stop revising them because they're not done, right? Well, um, all that said, I remember um, that TIFF was the last of the uh, film festivals. Lhasa and I took um, Cider House 2 before we released in theaters. It was our last time to see it with an audience and just tweak a few things, take a few scenes out. Um, and it had, we, it, it had been to Venice, it had been to Deauville, it had been to the London Festival. We'd seen it with audiences before, but the experience we had when we screened it at TIFF at Roy Thompson Hall was the best audience response we'd seen to date. And you know those balconies in, in mm -hmm. Thompson Hall. So I'm sitting up there in the balcony and here's this tall guy I don't recognize him. His hair's down to his shoulders. He, he looks like a crazier, older version of Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future. Right. Um, and until he speaks, I don't realize who it is. But he's stepping over the rail of one balcony into another. And it was Irvin Kirshner. And, and he said, I told you you'd learn something, kid. <laughs> I, I cried, you know, because he was the guy who taught me how to do it. He was the guy. And I love that story so much. It was just so great that, that he was there. Yeah. And I never knew he was there. That was John Irving on The Richard Krause Show. Find his book, The Last Chairlift, wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks to John Irving. Also, a big thanks to Mark Critch. Watch him every Tuesday night on This Hour as 22 Minutes as they celebrate their 30th year on television. And also, a big thanks to Alex Bird. Find his song, The Sweetest Moments, just in time for Thanksgiving on Spotify, Apple Music, and Bandcamp. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. Good night, you princes of Maine, you kings of New England. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. Bye.